Hello and welcome to No CPP Diagnostic Chat Required, a convergent look at what's going on in the world of C++, rounding up the news and chatting with guests from the community. But before we find out what's really going on and who the hosts are, John is here with a disclaimer. Thank you, Phil. This website does not provide medical advice. The information, including but not limited to text, graphics, and images, and other material contained on this website, are for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of a physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment, and before undertaking a new healthcare regime, and never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've read on this website. Well, if my intro didn't confuse you, then I'm sure that disclaimer did. So what, what is going on here? Well, uh, as many of you may know, I actually co-host two podcasts, although one of them hasn't been running just recently. So we have no diagnostic required, uh, co-hosted by Anastasia Kozakova here, and CPP Chat, which um, well, we last did an episode of, I think, back in April, co-hosted by, uh, by John Calpier. So what we're doing this time is each of you are guests on the other show, <laughs> and we're going to run them simultaneously so this is probably going to be a one-off welcome anastasia (laughs) (laughs) so the the, the way we do it with no diagnostic required is it's it's all focused on the news a bit of standards news a bit of general community news and then we have a bit of discussion but the way we do it on cpp chat is it's a case of the guest tries to stop john from talking too much (laughs) so we're going to do a bit of a mix-up of of those two things today so we've got some some news to get through. So we're going to start with the, the community news. Uh, Anastasia, I think you've got a, a blog post you want to tell us about. Um, yeah, I'm actually going to start talking about the code analyzers and code analysis. I think that's the topic uh, quite close to you, Phil. Uh, but yeah, would be happy to listen to what John thinks about it as well. So this is actually an article from the PBS Studio blog. Um, and like, if you're not yet convinced that static analysis might be helpful for you, and you might need some more real-world examples to prove the fraud, just go to this article and read for it, because it actually starts with a few very interesting examples with the from the open-source projects, like including the LVM and some others. So uh, there are some basic errors there, probably, but they might hurt badly <laughs> in some unlucky conditions. So um, just go for it to prove for yourself that you actually need a code analysis. And when you believe in that, you can explore the options. So... Uh, static analysis actually is just one of the options to be taken to prevent such errors. So you might take like, you know, the testing, the code reviews, the techniques like sanitizers, whatever. Uh, but the article is focused um, around a very specific thing, the static code analysis, mostly because the PVS Studio actually is doing a code analyzer. Uh, so probably that's the reason. <laughs> yeah, but actually they're talking not just uh, specifically about their tool, but about various errors and but also about the uh, checks their analyzers um, analyzer can perform um, so and I actually like the last part of the article when they discuss various static code analyzers and how actually to choose from the existing variation because uh, like we have many of them luckily in the C++ community and that's the situation when we have more tools and that's a good situation <laughs> um, compared to, I don't know, project models where that's a nightmare that we have that many of them with static analysis. I think that's a good thing to have lots of them. So um, yeah, and uh, they discussed the topic of the false positives and the analysis baseline 
like maybe that's an important thing to have uh, just not to be you know blown up with lots of warnings um and that's actually interesting to me because recently i was exploring this idea of you know gamification in code analysis when you might move for the code analysis in your project like level to level getting some you know achieving new levels making some team achievements whatever so when you not just uh, you know have all these checks jumping on you when you just open the code base but you go for this using some you know um kind of a game analogy when you have some baseline and then you move forward so i kind of like this discussion um but i may be more interested of what you feel think personally about the article because uh i guess you just recently uh written an article about the sonar lint and we were discussing it in the previous episodes um so uh have you found it interesting reading for the pvs studio article the articles are always interesting i do have to be careful what i say because from the <laughs> business sense we, we are technically competitors um those of you who have been around the soap community for a while will know that all the all of our all of us as competitors are, are actually friends so that, that that's fine but um yeah i do need to be careful what i say one thing that did stick out to me in the article was that the point about using multiple analyzers so you know why not use pvs studio and sonar lint uh, you, you'd never do that with something like a compiler or, or, a, or a debugger, you know, running both at the same time. But with static analysis, it makes perfect sense because we, we all concentrate on on different sets of warnings or rules. And uh, if you use more than one tool, you'll, you'll get even more results. So I should probably <laughs> stop with that, I think, and, and see what maybe John thinks. Well, actually, this is one thing that um, in my career, I, I always wished I was in a situation where I could use multiple compilers, not because we were going to ship multiple multiple bills or something like that but because i wanted to get uh the different different compilers have different hints they give you or i should say different warnings they give you about um about what may be and and that was one of the nice things when i worked on truly portable code is that you would you would um the code you were writing that was going to be run on another platform was going to be looked at by a completely different compiler which would have a completely different set of warnings and sometimes we would get uh, uh, get better information for that reason. And I think that multiple static analyzers is, is going to do the same kinds of things is uh, the, the different analyzers, of course, are going to have different checks and that's going to give you better feedback. Um, the, the, the challenge about the static analyzers is really how you can get it to fit into your workflow because the, the information is so valuable. It's kind of like, Imagine you could hire another programmer and all they ever did was stare at your code and tell you if you'd done something wrong. Um, of course, it's not a human, but that's got both pluses and minuses. Obviously, it it doesn't think the way a human does. But on the other hand, computers often do things that much, you know, some of the things that computers do are much better than what we as humans do. And some things are really awful. Um, and so that's what we're getting is what the computer can do really well for you. Don't don't overlook that. Find out how you can make that part of your workflow and, um, and, and get the benefit of that. I've always wanted to have the computer tell me more about what it, what it didn't like about my code. Not that I always listened, but I wanted to hear it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point about, about listening to the things, actually. I think when you have these kind of tools integrated in, for example, your ID, there's a very nice approach that we tend to use uh, in JetBrains is when we're not sure that if the warning is going to be like too annoying maybe for the user, we just convert it to a thing called 
uh, intention that it's not jumping on you with a warning, but you can like press alt enter and see the suggestion to change the code. And that kinder, you know, a little bit uh, removes the level of stress when you have all these warnings jumping on you from the analyzer if you haven't configured it properly for your code. Um, so that helps a little bit. Sometimes it's hard to then find the things there, but if you know about it, it's like a little bit helpful. But yeah, <laughs> overall, I agree. But that's, that's why you want to spend some time and invest with it because you can silence those things. You can say, I've, investiga I've investigated this. Don't, I'm going to, you know, I don't want to hear about this anymore. But with, particularly with new code, I've written, I've written, you know, these three new functions and I need, um, well, I don't need maybe, but I would like the, I would like the computer's opinion <laughs> or the software's opinion of, of what I could do to make this clear. And, and sometimes, you know, I do think about the code and it's like, no, I'm pretty confident this is correct, but maybe it could be made clearer, not just, not just to satisfy the analyzer. I don't care about that. But if it, if it was too hard for the analyzer to figure out, maybe it's also too hard for a human to figure out. So think about, and that's the reasoning through the process and convincing yourself, no, this is really a correct code. But at that point, you really understand it better than you did when you wrote it. And so that's when the time to say, maybe I could write this in a way that's even easier to understand. Because you know, to me, my top priority has always been about clarity. Uh, of course, I want it to run fast. Um, and of course, it has to be accurate. But if it's clear, then it's easier to maintain. It's easier for me to come back uh, and pick it up, understand it, maintain it, fix it if it's not accurate, uh, all those kinds of things. So I'm really striving for clarity. So if I can understand the code better, and and as he said, you know, looking at the at the analyzer and saying, why does the analyzer think this is wrong? What's wrong? And then you begin to get it, and you say, oh yeah, that's um, yeah, that could be a problem. I'm pretty sure it's not here. Maybe I can make this clearer so that it's obvious that that's not a problem. And I think that's a win. Yeah. I kind of agree. And like maybe talking about the clarity, that's a good move to our like next topic. So let's discuss a little bit um, more about the readability of the code and clarity of the code. That's another article which actually addresses a very uh, typical issue, typical problem in the code. And it's the case when you have two parameters of the same type, specifically in the article, it's just the booleans in the example, and they're passed to the function or as a template parameter. And you can just, you know, change the order and make a mistake. That's a very typical thing you can do. And I guess we all do write this code at, at least once or twice, or maybe many, many times in your life. Um, so, and like we all by accident, sometimes are passing the arguments in the wrong order that happens. So like, and that's breaking the code. And the article talks about like several approaches on how to avoid the issue. And it's specifically focusing on like, First of all, how to express the meaning of the parameters in the code itself. So the readability aspect. And the second is actually, yeah, of course, the preventing the wrong usage in compile time. So like, you know, not just noticing it too late, uh, but like noticing and capturing it in compile time. So the list of suggestions starts from some very naive thing like, you know, adding commands to the code, which like is a good suggestion, but how many of us are actually doing that, uh, especially for that reason? Uh, type aliases is also good, but finally the strong types are definitely the best solution from, from the article. Um, and what I actually liked about it when I was reading for the article, like 
Yeah, the strong types, using the strong types is the advice I usually hear when I talk to people about um, like uh, the type hints we do in the editor. Like we add in some hints to the parameters and to the uh, types so that the user can actually see what they have there. And the users quite often say to me that like, yeah, the hints are good, but we'd probably better use something like strong types to avoid this code and to avoid the problem. So it's good that the people are actually started thinking about this, this kind of thing. So yeah, um, I kind of think that's a nice, uh, you know, article, just a, not, not every, you know, it, it's kind of a basic one. An example is very basic, but it explains just the approach uh, in a good way. So what, what do you actually both think about it? The one that always gets me is the, the constructor for std string that takes a character and a, and a length <laughs> to, to oh, yeah. that character for. I get it wrong every single time. And I don't even notice straight away because <laughs> it compiles and sometimes even prints what I expected. <laughs> and then something weird happens. <laughs> yeah. This reminds me of um, uh, a, a woman I worked with. This was her thing was she didn't want to see ever, ever see Booleans in, uh, in parameters. And um, I hadn't really thought much about it until she pointed out. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. that doesn't make sense. Let's use enums instead. And I was very proud because we were working in this absolutely huge code base, right, that had been years and years and years in, in the creation. And I found a, a function that had five Boolean parameters, three of which had default values. There was almost <laughs> no way it was going to be called correctly, right? I mean, you just, <laughs> uh, it just wasn't going to be. And I remember taking it to her. It was, it was great delight and said, hey, Beth, look at this one. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was the learning for me. Uh, I realized, yeah, this is just crazy. Uh, and it makes so much sense, right? There's only two possible values. That means it's a bool, right? And uh, no, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> well, for, for Booleans, it's, um, it's actually fairly easy just to come up with an enum. I make an enum class these days. To, to replace that and it's more descriptive it's easy to write that's great for things like uh, integers where you've got different integers that mean different things then you're probably gonna have to reach for strong types and we don't really have good support of the language for for writing those you have to write them out in a very longhand way which is a shame mm -hmm. and i'm hoping that one day we will get language support but it, it doesn't seem like it's going to come soon but there is a flip side, which is if you're going to take the effort to write a strong type for someone like an integer in the first place, you can actually take it further and do things like um, specify the range more, more narrowly. So if, if your integer is only valid for values from zero to 100, then you know, enforce that in the constructor, whether that's with a, like a, a contract or an assert or check and throwing an exception, depending on your, your need. Once you enforce that in the constructor, you know that that is only ever going to be between zero and 100. You never have to check it again. You get all these additional benefits. You can improve performance and certainly safety. So, yeah, if you're going to take that effort, then think about maybe going even a little bit further as well. Yeah, I actually remember one more approach to this problem right now. So there is this um, nice article, I think it's by Google, uh, and it's kind of um, scientific stuff about how to detect cases where the parameters are actually passed in the wrong orders based mm -hmm. on the naming. So they kind of learn, uh, analyzes the names for the arguments for the parameters and can detect some cases when the parameters were actually uh, passed in the wrong order by mistake. Like they kind of avoid the cases like when you do that on purpose, like swap or something, 
but then they can detect the case. And we actually implemented this paper as a code inspection in C-Line and it works. I mean, like um, in some cases when you have a proper naming, which not always true, of course, but like when you have a proper names for your arguments and parameters, it can sometimes detect uh, like and can be very useful in not in all, definitely, but in many cases. So that's interesting to know that there is actually even, you know, a scientific paper on that. <laughs> <laughs> but strong types, yeah, I like the solution more. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know there's been proposals in the committee, but it's trickier than it yeah. sounds at first. Yeah, that's true. I actually quite like the way Swift does it, which you got from Objective-C with uh, the, the labels, which are like yeah. named arguments, but they're actually part of the function name. So it describes what each argument actually does. It's almost impossible to get that wrong. Yeah, that that's true. don't think we'll see that in C++. So. <laughs> yeah, but that that's Swift, yeah. like, uh, But that that's where we actually took the idea of of the hints like the type hints and the parameter hints like if you don't have this in the language let's just add this in the editor so that we can actually show you and you know what to uh you know what to pass to the function or to the um template yeah so yeah definitely helps <laughs> i worked on a it, this was in python it was a python code base but um the the protocol was that you would put underlines underscores in in the function name and the and the parameters were in that order so in other words you would basically say you know i don't know move underbar to underbar with underbar and that so the so that meant that you know you fill in those parameters as you read it and um uh i don't think there wasn't anything language specific about that it was just a protocol that particular company had uh, had developed and it it did help when you were looking at code you hadn't used before. You could, you knew that worked. Yeah, so you can read for it and kind of fill the gaps. Yeah, right. that's true. <laughs> if you replace those underbars with colons, then in Objective-C, you just actually slot the parameters in those places and it's yep. even better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep, it's exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Which may have been what inspired it. I don't know. It's possible that uh, Python code base was originally developed by someone who had done some Objective-C programming. I don't know. Possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, yeah, and moving to the next topic so far today in terms of the news. Yeah, so there's a nice article discussing like, uh, is the return value moved to a copy? And like, I kind of like it because I'm always wrong with this thing. Like every time I look at the code, I always have the concerns about that and especially in some tricky cases. And so that's kind of classical C++ question raised and discussed in different examples. And this article uh, written by Philip Pretner. So he's discussing like uh, a few or less basic general cases. And he has the examples of the move and the copies and the uh, like cases when the uh, object is directly constructed in memory, which is actually the majority of the cases in the article. Uh, so, but the thing that I liked is that uh, he's showing the assembly to analyze the call graph. So you can actually visually realize what's going on there. So you see when there is the constructor call, when there is the destructor call. So when there is this move or copy, so you can actually uh, like, you know, visually understand how it works. And to me, it uh, works better because I kind of memorize visually. And so I can actually memorize the pattern for the specific code piece. So um, he's discussing like the um, direct constructing objects in memory, 
provided by the color functions, the thing which has a very interesting name, I would say it's called unmaterialized value passing. I really like the name. I've heard it for the first time in the article. I think it looks great. Uh, so yeah, all these cases with returning local variable and, you know, this named return value optimization and returning a function parameter, which behaves differently, uh, moving from a local variable. So all these cases are kind of uh, discussed there. And finally, in the end, there are a few cases which triggers uh, copy. So I guess there are more cases for move and constructing in the memory than copy actually in the article. But uh, some uh, specific cases for copy, which shows that you have to treat references accurately, uh, are there in the end. So yeah. And, uh, you know, going back to the code analysis from which we start, while reading through the whole article, my main effort was like, why is the code analyzers are still not showing this to me? Because that's the typical issue I'm usually having. Like, is this a copy? Is this a move? Or what's going on there? And if some tool can just, you know, show a small tip to me, I would be more than happy. So, uh, yeah, that was my first while reading for the, for the article. And yeah, I really like the assembly parts there to understand how the things work. Um, so I don't know what you think about it. Well, done. Well, um, it's, it's something that I think all too often uh, engineers don't know enough about this and understand what's really going on. I think RVO is this incredible mental breakthrough. You know, when I began to understand what was really going on in the covers, it, it kind of changed how I thought about things. And for example, you know, when, when we teach new programmers uh, how to program in C++, they write a, a function and it returns an int. And we say, hey, good job. And then they write a, a function and it returns a double. We say, good job. And then they write a function and it returns a vector. And we say, whoa, 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 don't be, don't be returning <laughs> vectors because that's expensive stuff, right? And in fact, uh, no, it's going to RVO that. Uh, so now, of course, it, it would move it, but, it, but it's not going to move it. It's not going to move it. It's going to create it in place. And that's, I think, often overlooked. And we really need to make certain that engineers understand that's what's happening. That's, it's an incredibly important uh, optimization, and it is not how we teach people what's happening. We say when the compiler, when you say return something, it copies this somewhere else. Well, it can, but for the most part, it won't. It's going to create it in place, and that's a, that's a really important optimization uh, mandated now by the standard in many cases, and, um, and it changes how you think about things. It really does. And one of the reasons that's important is because there are times when people want to return something like a container or a vector or something like that. And they say, well, in order to prevent a copy from happening, I'm going to wrap it in an STD move, which turns out mm -hmm. to be a pessimization yep. because you're forcing then a move construction instead of just creating it in place. And this is a, this is a trap. And we need to do better training of engineers to understand what RVO and NRVO are when they are used and and make it clear and you know i have in my training i, I got some slides from dave abraham so i seem i think are the best single set of slides i've ever seen so i made a a lightning talk out of it so you can look at uh for the lightning talk because they show what's going on in a way that really makes it not just explain what's happening but make it so that you rec recognize that the compilers are going to do this. It's it's a no-brainer optimization for the compiler to do. Um, and so it gives you confidence. Because I had read about this optimization, I don't remember where, probably from Andre. Uh, but 
Um, I'd read about the optimization. It was kind of like, yeah, can the compiler really do that? I didn't understand how it did it. Um, I was just assured, yeah, yeah, the compiler will do this. And it's like, okay, maybe. When I saw Dave's slides, I realized, yeah, the compiler would be crazy to not do this. It's an obvious optimization that that any you know, any compiler is going to do. And um, and then it, it changed. As it, when I saw that, that changed how I thought about code a lot because I began to realize what's going on when you do a return that I hadn't realized before. And it it makes it really clear when you need to do an STD move and when you don't. And of course, most of the time you don't. The only time you use an STD move is if you have a parameter passed in that's a temporary and you want to pass that on through. And that doesn't happen often. When it happens, use STD move. In almost no other situation would you ever do that. Or you could do STD forward if you had a appropriate parameter coming in. But 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 if it's a local, um, and even if it's a parameter that's a by-value parameter, the that's where we have this um, special classification of the um, X, X values, right? Where it's an expiring, you know, technically it's an L value, but we treat it as an R value because it's an expiring L value. This is the case. This is this special case to basically say, if you have a, a, a parameter that is a value parameter and you're returning it, of course you want it moved. And so the compiler just does that. If you write in an STD move, you aren't pessimizing things, but it's a waste. You don't need to do that. And you're in fact betraying that you don't understand how C++ works, which is a little embarrassing. <laughs> so you understand how C++ works? Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what you need to have, understand, we, actually. <laughs> that's right. We all have a little glimpse of how C++ works, right? <laughs> but it does tie one. back to something you were saying earlier, John, that um, it, it's best to start from writing your code to be to clear and understandable before worrying about performance, because half the time you're actually making it clearer for the compiler as well about how it can reason mm -hmm. about your code. And then it can do these optimizations for you because you're expressing your intent. And then the compiler says, yeah, I know a good way to do that. And that's why we, we really need to be using tools like Compiler Explorer or uh, any sort of performance measuring tools to, to see well, what's it actually doing? Is this really a problem? Is this something I actually need to get down and do something specific to, to handle rather than just expressing my intent? So mm -hmm. I always prefer to raise that level of abstraction. And then those language features are, are trying to do just that to raise our level of abstraction more towards what we intend. So a moving story, definitely. Move semantics will come back in a moment, I think, actually in the, the standards news as well. In fact, maybe we'll start with that one. So standards news. <laughs> uh, we, we have a few papers to look at this month. We'll start with P2445, stood forward like. But this is a paper I actually had a glimpse of last month uh, before it was published. And I, I, I did a little write-up of it and they realised, hang on, it's not published yet, so I'll save it for next month. So now's the time. And on the face of it, this seems like a, a, a rather odd facility. And why would you want it? Uh, a little bit arcane. But actually, there's a very good reason for it. So stood forward like is like stood forward. In that stood forward takes the value category of something you, you pass to it, which may be generic, well, usually is if you're using it, and will preserve that value category as you pass it on. So if you give it an R value reference, uh, it continues to be an R, R value reference. If you get an L, L value reference, it continues to be an L value reference and so on. Oh, either you already understand that now or, or you don't, in which case you can zone out for the rest of this. But 
stood forward like says, well, yeah, I want to preserve the value category, but not the thing that I'm passing it, but of something else and apply it to this thing that I'm passing. So it's like forward this as if it's this other thing, that value category. Now, why would you want to do that? That sounds like a really weird thing to want. But the, there's a few cases actually, but the motivating case is something we talked about last month that was uh, deducing this, where we can now specify an explicit argument to a member function as being the this argument. And we can make that generic, which means we can capture it by different value categories. So it could be an R value reference, or it could be a, a value, or it could be a reference or a pointer. It could be any of those things. We won't necessarily know in generic code, but we may also want to refer to a member of that object and then forward that on, combining the, the value category of the, the member itself and the object it's being called on. And you can do that with std forward like. You say forward this like the object it's a member of. That's the motivating case. If you think it through, that makes a lot more sense. Apparently, there are some other use cases as well that, that drop out of it. I have to read the paper for that. But one of those sort of little things that you think, yeah, I, I can see why we need that. And then you forget all about it. <laughs> Most people will probably never, never need it. But um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a useful one to, uh, <laughs> to uh, have been proposed anyway. So I suppose you have any thoughts on that, either of you two? Yeah, it looks like a good fix which we need for deducing this so it lists the main use case sounds like that yeah. so while reading for at the intro to the proposal i haven't read it in full just the first part so it looks like yeah that's indeed the thing we need for the deducing this so uh, i'm wondering if there are more uh you know another inspiring cases where we might need that so i'm not sure if there are any in the in the proposal itself so but for deducing this, I totally agree that we might need. But it sounds, yeah, it sounds, the name at least sounds a little bit weird to me. Like, uh, makes sense when you have this explanation what it actually does. Mm. But like, yeah, <laughs> a little bit creepy. <laughs> Mimicking something, yeah. But there is a part of the paper which um, I would need to read through a few times, I think, to get my head around it. So I'm not going to do it justice, but... <laughs> It's basically pointing out that we, we already have, uh, I mean, right now, if you are dealing with a member of an object, then the way you deal with that object is a combination of the value categories of, of two things. And then there are language rules that automatically apply to, to give you a, like a, a combined value category, if you like. And in some cases, they don't quite do what you would want. And so there's like different models you can use. And I think stood forward like will actually give you control over which of those models is actually applied. So you, even with what we have today, you can get more fine-grained control about how value categories emerged. And let's say it gets a little bit off into the weeds. I'm sure it's really useful in, in certain particularly library implementation scenarios, but um, maybe may less applicable to, to an average application developer, I think. This is the kind of thing that brings out my skepticism that says, <laughs> does this need to be in the standard? And maybe I'm missing it. Maybe particularly when we start to deduce this and we start to use that more, um, then it's going to be obvious why we need to have this in standard. But if it can be done, um, then I'm wondering why you couldn't just wrap this yourself and use it in those few cases. Because uh, putting it in the standard and explaining it to everyone, it it th there's some overhead associated with that. But, you know, maybe I'm... I'm making the bar too high, high to put in the standard, but lots and lots of things go in the standard. And, um, 
and I, I kind of wonder if the bar shouldn't be a little bit higher. Uh, but I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, as I said, it just raises my skepticism here. It's not that I definitely think this is wrong to put it in the standard, because it may be uh, that when you try to implement it, it's pretty tricky to implement and you really want that to be done by the compiler instead of by, uh, by you know, a, a library that, that you've rolled yourself. That could be. Um, but again, um, I'm wondering, is this going to be used often enough that it should be in the standard? So I think both those are actually addressed in the paper. Um, it's, a, it's a reasonable concern. And it, it, if I remember right, it does say that you could just roll this yourself. But it is sufficiently tricky to get it right. Uh, you have to think about all these like, different like combinations of value categories and think of that all through. It's, it's non-trivial. It's not necessarily the implementation that's that's hard. It's the getting the right semantics. So we really want, want to just do that thinking once and, and have a, a standard facility that does the right thing. Uh, that, that was my reading of it anyway. So it should be in boost for a year or two, and then we put it in standard. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, and, and I should have prefaced all of this by saying you know, that these are papers that are in flight. They're not currently adopted into the working draft. So uh, we, we may not get this, at least not yet. Yeah, the other side to it, how often would we we'd need this? A lot more when we get to deducing this, which has been adopted. Absolutely. Let's say that is the motivating case. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how the discussion goes, but it's an interesting one anyway. So talking of interesting papers, P2461 is another one that I alluded to last month before it was published. And now I can say a little bit more about it. So... This is the new proposed syntax for contracts. So obviously we don't have contracts yet either, but during the discussion of, um, I forget the paper number now, the, the current minimum viable product for contracts. Some concerns were raised over the syntax and how it interoperates with other things and, and a few things like, are we going to lock ourselves into whether we can refer to a parameter in a post condition using its initial value and Lots of questions about that, which we want to defer, but we don't want to lock out the design space uh, with a particular syntax right now. So in the middle of all this, this proposal came up to say, well, what about if we have a different syntax that looks more like lambdas? And initially it was just the, uh, the, the captures list from lambdas, lambdas um, and it seems to have evolved a bit now to be more fully like lambdas. So rather than the, the double square brackets syntax that Everyone says, yes, it looks like attributes, but it's not, which is one of the problems. Um, we have something that looks like lambdas, but it's sort of not. But actually, when you see it, it makes a lot of sense. So forget the closures for a moment, just the having a what looks like a function body, and you've got code in there that gets executed, and you imagine that's a lambda. So now you've got this deferred execution model that we understand. We say, right, here's some code. It may or may not run, depending on compiler flags or, or how how it's implemented so we can't reason in advance about that sort of thing we know how that works we have post conditions can take a an optional argument which is the return value so that just comes in as if it's like a function argument to the to the lambda and then the closures uh, sorry the capture list can be used particularly on the post condition and it's explicitly not proposed yet it's saying this is what we could do because we want to defer that to say how you want to capture a, a parameter to be used in a post condition. 
Do we want to capture it by value? In which case it's got to be copied. In which case we automatically understand, well, this has to be a copyable value. So if it's a move only type, you're not going to be able to use it like that. Or do you want to capture it by reference? In which case, well, it's obviously then going to be the value at the end of the, the function. So if it's mutated in the meantime, it's the final value. But now it's explicit in the code, in a, in a syntax that we're already familiar with, how that works. So I think this has a, lo a lot of potential. Uh, it solves some other problems as well, like the, you know, it's not a, an attribute <laughs> issue. Uh, potentially some interplay with um, with C because they want to get their own contracts and we, uh, they don't necessarily want to use the, the attribute syntax and there may be some problems there. I just like the way this looks as well. And it, it opens up lots of um, additional things that sort of drop out of it. That for me is often a good sign that we're, we're going the right way when it doesn't just solve this problem and this problem only, but opens up lots of other solutions at the same time. So do you, do you have any thoughts on, on that at all? Yeah, I kind of like the new syntax. I mean, like it's definitely quite nicely readable. So, and I like that it looks like lambdas, you know. The only fruit I have here, which is kind of the major thing, is that usually we have several revisions for, for the proposal. And with contracts, it looks to me like we're having more and more proposals around that. And so we're changing lots of things and we're still discussing like the new syntax, whatever. So it doesn't look to me that we're going to end with something usable in 23. Um, and it's a little bit sad. So I, I like the feature. I like the journal, how, how, how it goes, how it evolves. And I really like the new syntax, I have to say. So, but uh, yeah, the thing that we're creating more and more proposals around the topic uh, and they are kind of looks to me like, okay, let's start from scratch. We'll redo this part and let's start from scratch. We'll redo this approach. Um, I wonder where it's gonna, you know, end up in something usable for the C++ developers in the end of the day. So one of the things that this does address, and you kind of alluded to this, Phil, is, uh, when doing a post condition, if you want to uh, you want to express your post condition in terms of one of your parameter values, which is a really common thing to do. So for example, I'm calling some function and let's say I pass in a couple of, among other parameters, there's a couple of values that specify this is the maximum possible value and this is the minimum possible value of what I'm looking for. So I'm looking for some value that'll be between those two. Obviously your post condition is going to be that the return value is greater than this minimum and less than this maximum. You have to do that. but if you, if the uh, if the function were to modify either of those values, that's worthless. You don't really want to express the post condition in terms of what is the final value of this parameter. You want it the incoming value. But the problem with that is there was no way for the original proposal to deal with that because the only way you could do that in practice was to make a copy of the parameters that came in. But you can pass a parameter that's not copyable. So what do you do? Uh, you see what I'm saying? That's, that's the problem that the original proposal had. And so they wimped out and they said, when you, the, when you uh, are expressing a post condition you're ex with, a, with a parameter value, it's the final value of that parameter, however it changes within the, within the use of the function, which is exactly the convenient and easy to do thing. And it's always possible to do because that's the value you have at the end of the function. But it's useless. That's not the value you want. It, it's, it's any post condition that is, uh, unless the parameter is passed in as const, 
any post condition expressed on a on a parameter value is um, it, it, it's meaningless because the whole point of a post condition is it should be regardless of how you implement the function. And so, if in the in the implementation of the function you change one of the parameter values, you don't want to express the post condition in that. But but they couldn't because of the fact that some parameters could be passed in that can't be copied. Then what do you do? And uh, this allows us to express this and essentially says, um, if you, you're not going to be able to express it. If you have a parameter you're passing in and it can't be copied, then you're not going to be able to, to capture it by copy. And so it, it sidesteps the problem because that's, it's, it's going to be rare. How often do you actually pass a parameter that can't be copied and you want it? It's not going to happen very often, but that's what the original proposal was stuck with. There was no way to work around this because of this possibility. And now with this syntax, we can say, oh, if you, uh, if you have this situation, you just can't have this situation. You can't express a post condition in terms of a value that you're passing in that can't be copied unless you make it const, in which case then, then you could do that. But um, I, for no other reason, I like that. And I think it's, it basically falls into what you're saying, Phil, which is it's solving multiple problems. It's it's clearly a, a a direction to move in because uh um because that was a really annoying problem. I don't know if it was a crippling problem, but it had forced the original proposal to make the wrong decision about what to do with post condition values of parameter. Now they now that can be addressed. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking actually now, you know, we nearly got contracts in twenty. So we stopped them at the very last moment. And now with all these things being discussed, I'm just wondering how, like, how much of an error we might have actually have <laughs> if we actually have the contracts in 20. Because we stopped them quite late to, to what everyone heard about it. Like, yeah, so we, we nearly got them, but then we stopped. And now we start digging into them more and more, finding all these cases and adding these, you know, new proposals. And I'm just wondering what's there behind the curtain. Do we have more that we haven't heard about before? So maybe that was indeed the right decision to stop it then so because of all these details. And I can say that, um, and I can't quote anyone because this is really based on things that I've heard behind the scenes. There is a feeling amongst those that know we're not going to get contracts in 23. It's, it is now too late given what, what we're, we're dealing with here. Which is not to say it's impossible, so that's just people's feelings, but uh, it's unlikely at this point. So there's a good chance for 26, though. <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the problems with um, with contracts is people had fundamental different ideas about what they were trying to do yeah. with it. It wasn't just, uh, you know, with Lambda expressions, there was lots of discussions about what the syntax, but everybody understood, no, no, we're trying to create an object that you can call. It, that's, you know, trying to create a closure somehow. But with contracts, um, is, this, is this entirely for testing or are we doing something that having created the test, we can allow the compiler to use the assumptions in the contract to, to optimize the code? And that's a, that was a very contentious way of looking at, at you know, what, is it, what is it we're trying to do here? And um, I think that that discussion needs to be taken into account rather than just Rather than just focusing on what the syntax is, is what is it we're trying to accomplish? And that's a that's a deep question. Yeah, so one, one thing we didn't really discuss this time, because we talked about it before, is that this new syntax paper, it's 
based on the the current what we're calling the minimum viable viable product paper, which is the really stripped down contract. So just the bits that right. supposedly everyone agrees on. It turns out there's still some disagreements, but we've got it down to like this minimal set. What's the minimal we can get in? And then we can have those arguments about assumptions and modes and things later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're actually still deferring that, and we're still missing 23 by the looks of it. But maybe that means that when we get it, we will get everything. But I think it's still going to go in piecemeal. We're going to get the minimum stuff, and then we're going to build on that. What I like about this new syntax paper is it gives us a very clear direction on at least some of those things that we're still, still deferring to the future, even if we're not going to commit to them just yet. So... I think it's a positive step, even if it's going to push it back. Talking of positive steps, what do you think about making the the standard library into a single module? So that's uh, <laughs> P2465, standard library modules std and std.compat. So this is where you, you can port the whole of the, the standard library just by doing import std, uh, but not including the things that are in the global namespace for C compatibility reasons. If you want those, then you import std.compat, you get those as well. But at, at first it seems like, well, I really would rather a more fine-grained approach, but there's, there's good reasons why they're not presenting that. But before we get into that, any any comments on this in general? Well, no, the, yeah, the, that's, the, that's the trade-off. How convenient is it to just say, oh, uh, yeah, I want to use a standard library. Why wouldn't you? Um, but on the other hand, yeah, maybe I do want something a little more fine-grained uh, because maybe I'm doing a freestanding or something like that, and I don't really need all this stuff because I can't use it anyway because it's freestanding. Yeah, freestanding yeah. is an interesting angle, I think. But, uh, sorry, Anastasia. No, that, that's fine. I'm just thinking that, like, granularity is good, but unless I can actually use the thing, I don't know what I need. I mean, like, I can't use them still properly except for just a few cases. Um, so it's hard to say what I actually need from the standard library and how the granularity should go. So maybe that's a good decision for now, you know, just to go with like nearly all or nothing um, and then think about some further steps. Um, I don't know if that's scalable, that that's a good approach probably. So um, it, it turns out, and I got this mostly from Bryce's discussion on the recent um, CPP cast, if you haven't heard that episode, uh, that's definitely worth uh, listening. He goes into some of this in quite some depth. That they actually compared using more fine-grained modules with just a single module, and the single module performed better. So it's the opposite of what we would expect with the the, the hash include model, where you actually do more do more fine-grained for performance reasons, but compile time performance reasons. But including a single module was actually faster to to do at least with current tools so that's certainly not a reason not to do it the other side is you can get into a situation with fine-grained uh, headers being included where you don't get a complete overload set and so when you do have to bring in another header it actually changes the the set of available overloads and can introduce problems after the fact which is not a situation you want to get into i mean it's a it's a general c plus plus problem but it exists with the standard library today which you don't get if you import. The oh, that would be library. that would be easy. That would be easy to track down, <laughs> Phil. That that's not going to take you days and days of figuring out what what went wrong because you thought it used to work right and now it doesn't work right. And the only thing you did was uh, include this other header. That couldn't possibly happen. No, well, not for you, John, because you understand so oh, okay. perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> 
no, I, I don't know how often that problem happens with the standard library in general, but it's a real problem that yeah, you can you can have something working with one include, include something else, and then the first thing stops working. And including the whole of the standard library in one goal just, just solves that. So that those are the two things I got from this anyway. But it seems like um I think it's a positive direction embracing the modules world. We'll get there one day. <laughs> I hope so. This, this was always something that scared me a little bit about um, what the standard said about uh, including headers, that the, the, the standard didn't necessarily say which headers included other headers. So you could end up mm. in a situation yeah. where on your system, you include this header and everything builds, but you take this exact code and you take it to another compliant system and it won't build now because one of the headers that you are including was including another header, which is on this system doesn't get included. And so something doesn't, that, that always scared me. Um, uh, Now I was told when I, when I talked to implementers, they said, it turns out that usually headers don't include other headers, whatever's common. They'll, how do I say this? They would not include other top level headers, but they might have some common thing. That's so there's another header that we don't, Mm. that's not published. So it's included by both internally or something like that so these things tend not to be a problem but that's not a very strong assurance it's not been my experience i get bitten by that a lot <laughs> okay um but this is this is going to make it so yeah i just want to turn on the standard of course now the question is when would you not want that why not just say just assume everything imports the standard <laughs> <laughs> freestanding you said so yourself um well uh yeah i suppose yeah yeah no. Yeah, I, I don't but, know if um, there's any proposal for like a std dot freestanding module. Maybe that would be an actual evolution, but there may be some reason why not as well. I don't know. Like, I'm pretty much sure that we'll get some when the people actually start migrating the code bases to models. I mean, not playing with the, you know, some samples and some compiler pre-implementation, but when they actually start migrating the real code bases, we'll get like tons of these things, I guess, in discussions. Right now we have two problems. One is modules in you, so there's very little tooling support. That's gradually coming, but it's widespread. People are not going to embrace it. And the other is the standard itself is not using modules. So this is promising because if the standard itself starts being packaged as a module, people are going to start using that as soon as they can. And then they'll say, right now, I want to modularize all my stuff as well. So I think that's um, going to be a necessary first step for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Like, if the standard doesn't use that, why would I? <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. And it, it may be that we have to to rethink things, because as I said, this kind of assumption that we made that, well, you know, importing everything is going to be more expensive than just importing the stuff you need. Well, if that's not true, then maybe we need to rethink how we think about these. I mean, right now we all have a mental model based on pound include because we've used that for, oh, I don't know, ever. And um, and if that's not the right way to think about it, then that's going to take some some getting used to, some some rethinking things, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we seem to have gone a bit long on, on that. We, we actually wanted to reserve a bit of time to talk about something close to um, <laughs> all, all three of our hearts, I think, <laughs> which is conferences, particularly as we, we just had CPPCon, we've all been involved with. Were you at CPPCon, John? 
Um, I was there for um, part of, well, okay, all of it. Yes, I was there. <laughs> what, what was um, special about this year? Well, um, this year is the first year we did a hybrid version. We've done, of course, on-site for six years. And then last year we did online. And this year we've done hybrid. Uh, that was a bigger change than I thought it would be. It was kind of like, oh, we, how difficult can this be? We've done on-site, we've done online. Uh, hybrid can't be that hard. And um, I will say we completely planned uh, the program schedule about uh, two and a half times because the first, <laughs> the first time wasn't quite pleased with it, so we did it again. And uh, then, then it, it was a working, and then we redid it again. And um, it's way hard. Um, but I, I really am pleased with where we ended up. I was still... Um, I, I went into the conference with a lot of trepidation. I was afraid that because you know, there were a lot of things that we um, that have become part of CPPCon that we just couldn't do this year. We didn't have tool time. We didn't have author signings. There's just a lot of things that we normally do. Poster program, lots of things that we just couldn't do. And so it, I was afraid it would feel like. Um, it wasn't quite right somehow. And in fact, it was wonderful. It was so much better. Maybe I had low expectations and, and set a low, low bar, but it was amazing, particularly the first day when everybody who you saw said, I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it was just, it was just terrific. Um, and uh, so there's tons of excitement, tons of positive feelings. Uh, a lot of people are are delightful and optimistic to be able to get together and see each other in person. I'm so missed you guys because I didn't get to see either of you there. Um, but the people we saw, um, it, it was just terrific. It's just so exciting, so much energy, so much positivity. Um, and, um, that it didn't, I mean, and people would sometimes ask me about, well, what about this? Well, we couldn't do it this year. Oh, okay. Disappointing, but, but not going to cry about it. Um, it was it was what it was. A lot of fun. A lot of, as I said, everybody was happy. Everybody was excited. Everybody was positive, and um, so that's um, that's been great. That's been really great. I was definitely disappointed to not be there in person, but I was there in spirit and and virtually, of course, <laughs> as was uh, Anastasia. Yeah, but I, I did manage to get to NDC Tech Town the week before. So I went to, to Norway in person. So I had a bit of a taste of that as well. And I can, can agree that even like a scale back event, um, it just makes such a difference to what we've been used to for the last nearly two years now. Mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, anything is uh, just, just amazing. So what kind of attendance did they have on site? Were they, were they hybrid? Nope. They were, well, they were meant to be fully in person. One of the keynotes was meant to have been given by Jason Turner. He couldn't arrive, but he didn't really know that until fairly late, just because of the way the rules have been changing. So they, they brought him in virtually. Uh, so he came up on a, on a big screen. Uh, but that was about the only one, I think. There might have been one other. I'm not too sure. But it was primarily fully in person, that they were a bit more bold. In, in Norway, they had a <laughs> little bit more of an opportunity to, uh, to cater to the local crowd. How uh, how is the attendance compared to uh, say two years ago or the last time they did it? It was it was a little bit down, but not not that much. Definitely yeah. more than half. 
I'd say maybe, maybe two-thirds. Difficult for me to remember the numbers, but I think it's, it's quite, quite good, quite strong. I'd say because most of the attendees were fairly local, uh, not just to Norway in general, but to, to that particular region of, of Norway. So it was fairly easy for most of them to get there. So that was a bit of a difference. Yeah, I guess Gorsi Plus in August was also kind of mm. local in-person, uh, mostly event. So in Israel, and they have quite a big event compared to their, like, I guess it was the first one just before the uh, pandemic year. And uh, I've heard that it was kind of comparable. I mean, like it was fully local, mostly like with exception to just a few speakers uh, from abroad, but it was quite big and they had great time there. So, yeah, well, <laughs> I feel actually envy well, to all of you. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. well, that was one of the things. I mean, they made that as a conscious decision. In other words, um, they were happy the first time, of course, to have international speakers and international attendees. But this last time, they really made it a conscious decision to kind of say, well, we really only want locals uh, and planned around that. Yeah. And so um, uh, I did get a chance to, fortunately, Inval was actually, a, who who is an organizer for, for uh, CPPCon, CPPCore, was able to attend CPPCons. And I got to to talk to her a bit about it. Um, and she 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 brought me a gift, a very sweet gift. It was Jerusalem honey. Little jar of Jerusalem honey, um, or will be great. Still sealed at this point. Anyway, uh, um, uh, yeah. So, so that was so that was what they were doing. We, of course, I mean, we knew going in that it was going to be. We weren't going to have almost anyone from Europe. Uh, Timor accepted. Uh, um, yeah, you know, Tima had a very tricky trip because to yeah. get Tima and uh, like, if you don't know, Tima is back to Cherry Prince as our developer advocate. Um, so yeah, a little bit stepping in the shoes of Phil. Uh, so, but like to get him to CPPCon, we had actually asked him to come to St. Petersburg to spend like his first two weeks uh, with us here in St. Petersburg. He actually visited the office. He was quite happy to see the team back. Uh, but yeah, after that, he could actually fly to United States to CBBCon. So yeah. Right. And uh, he actually mm, preparing right now a trip report about uh, the CBBCon this year. And I've already seen the draft. He's very much excited about the event. And so he's very happy about how it all went. And he's even happy with the fact that there were not so many people actually uh, there exactly in the venue, like offsite, because he got a chance to talk to the majority of the, uh, you know, people attending the CPPCon, which is totally impossible if you have, you know, 1,000 and a half, uh, hundreds of people there. So that that's just, no, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, it, it had kind of more of a C++ Now feel to it. Mm -hmm. uh, not entirely, but, um, but, but the smaller attendance, a lot of people did, in fact, comment on that. It, it felt different because you had better access to speakers uh, because of the ratios. And, um, and I, I think, yeah, I think it was a positive experience for that reason. And uh, of course, C++ now we are planning, we're going to do it on site better, you know, the world better straighten itself out by May. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we can do that. Um, yeah. Uh, as far as international, uh, we did have people from, from Canada and people from Israel, but, uh, no one from Europe. And that was um, noticeably felt. Except Timo. You know, we missed you. Except Timo. Um, we actually did have more attendees. We set a record for total attendees. 
uh, not a lot more. I think um, in 2019, we had 1,400 on-site. And this year, between on-site and online, we had about 1,450. So we did have more. Hmm. Um, but we did have a lot of people uh, expressing, people who were there, who were basically expressing a kind of uh, fatigue of virtual events. It's it's not nearly the same kind yeah. of thing. It's, it's more tiring. And... Um, it's a different experience to be there on site. Yeah, it's definitely different. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, like, uh, even this year, like, because I was visiting CPCon only just online, but last year it was much better for me in terms that I managed somehow to allocate, you know, a whole week <laughs> in my work timetable to be the part of CPPCon this year. Unfortunately, like, yeah, the only talk I visited live was actually mine. Uh, mm -hmm. the rest of them, I was mostly just listening, um, afterwards. So the same day or maybe the day after the day. So, and I guess none of them were alive uh, and that was a sad thing. So I would prefer to be part of the, you know, the, the whole, the whole inspiration, uh, not just, you know, listening to that, to the content later, but yeah, like there are these downsides, um, but I actually wanted to ask you, John, what was this story about the figures and the signatures with the speakers' figures? I enjoyed it. Every time the keynote started, you were bringing this figure to the speaker and asking to sign. So I would just wanted to ask what was the story behind how it all went? Because it, it looked very interesting from the online perspective. <laughs> so we made four bobbleheads. Um, well, I shouldn't say we made four. We actually, I guess there's several hundred of them got made. Uh, but they're four different models. Um, so yes, when um, when Bjarni did his talk, I I uh, presented him with his bobblehead, and I gave him a pen, and I said, "You're going to be signing them," because of course we were selling them in the store. So uh, the models for them were Bjarni and um, Herb Sutter and Sean Parent and Scott Myers, who of course was not a keynote this year. He hasn't been often. He hasn't been active in our community. Um, I'm going to see if I can get him to come next year and do another uh, uh, training. After he retired, he did come to CPPCon one year and do a, did a training class on how to do technical presentations, which is something, of course, he does very, very well. Um, so maybe we can get him to come back. Um, not making any promises, uh, but uh, yeah, we had the, so that those four bobbleheads were available for sale. We sold them as a set uh, until. Um, the middle of the week or something like that. And then, and then we started to let people buy them as individuals. So that's what the signing was for because, uh, because people could get their sets autographed. Um, so that's what it's for. It was really exciting. Um, the, the bobbleheads are, are, uh, kind of cute. And I wrote this thing about how you can use them to solve technical problems, which is a surprise to some people, but no, you can use them to solve technical problems, which of course makes them tax deductible. Um, uh, but the idea is that you explain your problem uh, explain your problem in simple terms, very clear, break down all the steps. Because you see, unlike the originals that they're modeled on, the bobbleheads don't have much computing power and they don't have much memory. So you have to explain everything at a very, very low level. And of course, when you do that, you very often will discover your solution to the problem. And uh, so that makes them an important technical tool. So we, um, we did a vote and asked people, who they would like to see uh, another, uh, the next bobblehead made. Unfortunately, that will probably be a while because um, we have 
so many of the originals that we still need to sell. But uh, eventually, um, we will announce who who the next bomb is. You probably can send these figures, you know, to the user groups worldwide. <laughs> um, I don't know. Just generate well, some ideas. Um, one of the one of the things that we had discussed doing was to allow online people to purchase things, and we would just ship them out to them. But there was a few logistical things that made that tricky and hard to do. But that was the that was one of the things we wanted to do was be able to send shirts and bobbleheads and all the other stuff that we sell with uh, with the CPPCon and or ISO uh, Standards Foundation logo on it. And in fact, um, we did. Uh, let's see if I have an example here. We made buttons, uh-huh. including CPP chat buttons. So I, I, I brought some of these back with me. Uh, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that looks cool. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was cool. We, we, actually, had- we actually have, you know, at C++ Russia, we have ducks. Uh, and we are just printing these ducks for all the attendees, I guess, at least for all the speakers. And maybe the attendees can buy it as well. I, I don't know, because I usually get this duck as a member of the program committee. And uh, definitely, like my children are just grabbing all these ducks from me, but they are actually cool. And but they are coming every year, asking like, "If we gonna get a new duck from your conference?" So maybe the figures could also be popular. I would explain to them who is Bjarne. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, um, so Incredibuild made a little Bjarne doll mm-hmm. that they uh, raffled off. Uh, and so I guess they had presented that to him when he was in, well, so no, I guess he was the keynote speaker for, for C++, but he didn't attend in person. So they presented it Mm. to him at CPP. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. My dog ate my C++ Russia duck just this week. (laughs) I need to get another one. You probably will get another one because you're a speaker for (laughs) this year. (laughs) So, yeah, we'll have an online pure virtual event. Unfortunately, we can't uh, handle like any kind of a hybrid or something, um, at least for now. So we'll have an online event in a couple of weeks, just two weeks, I guess, before the start. So it's uh, from 15 uh, of November. So, yeah, Phil is uh, one of the speakers. Actually, we have quite a big intersection with the CPPCon this year. So we have Phil, we have Titus uh, with the same talk. Uh, I guess we have Andreas Verti and Anthony Williams who were probably also giving the talks at CPPCon. So yeah, we have kind of um, some talk from the CPPCon repeating here. Um, but overall, the aspect of the conference is a little bit different. So I was looking at the program we just finalized. This was Russia one a couple of weeks ago, and I was looking at the CPPCon program and they looked, uh, I would say, differently to me. And that that's a good thing probably that we have different aspects so yeah, but Phil, you'll get the duck <laughs> and you won. Looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think this time of the year is always pretty dense with uh, events in our community, but I think this year even more than usual, maybe just because CPBCon uh, is a bit later. Um, I think NDC Tech Town is also a bit later. So we've had Tech Town, yeah. CPBCon, next week meeting C++, the week after C++ Russia. I think ADC is on at the same time as C++ Russia. And then beginning of December, we've got CPPP, uh, which I'm also going to be speaking at. I just found out this week. Uh, and I think C++ Summit as well is usually at the beginning of December. So 
And it's only yeah. been maybe one or two weeks that doesn't have anything on. So CPPP is Paris? Usually. Well, say usually. It's been been in Paris once. I guess yes. it's online. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fully online again this year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, ADC is uh, is going to be in London and they are doing it. Uh, that's going to be hybrid, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to be... Um, Great, great to see that. Great to see the the face to faces because uh, hmm. I can tell you, having been through it and having observed everybody who was there, it. it I don't know what to say. It, it, I I, ho- I assume that people in the audience, if you haven't been to a face to face yet, you're looking forward to it, and I'm going to tell you that it will be as good as you think it will. It'll it'll be great. Uh, ADC is the Audio Developers Conference, so obviously right. it's going to be primarily, yeah, going to primarily appeal to people that are in that field. But if you have any interest in, in audio and music at all and, and C++ or programming in general, it, it's definitely worth going. If, if only for the, for the lightning talk. So they call it the open mic night, which is never recorded. So you'll get some things in there that wouldn't necessarily want to be recorded. But there's also some just amazing musicians who just get up and just play something, but often using hardware that's not being released or so software they just hack together or <laughs> it's just uh, next next level stuff i think so if you could ever get a yeah, chance it, to go to see that you should it it makes perfect sense but it hadn't occurred to me it was uh timor <laughs> who explained to me that most uh audio engineers are also musicians as well i mean it's not it's it's uh yeah. it, you know it's not a requirement of course but it turns out that the that the whole conference has lots and lots of uh, uh musicianship and uh and of course, the open mic night. That's why they don't call it lightning talks. It's open mic night because yeah. people are showing off uh, cool stuff that they're doing in conjunction with their um, software. Yeah, yeah. yeah ID is actually. I have a very good memories of it. I think I've been to it several times, maybe quite quite many, I guess. And like, yeah, this open mic is just a thing. So it's really very great and inspiring, and. You feel, you know, you feel the vibes because like all these people are talking about amazing stuff. Um, so even if you're not a musician or just getting into this kind of like a developer, it's still very, very much inspiring. And the expo was always very much inspiring because they have all these kind of cool devices there, which you can actually touch because with the software, you usually can't actually touch the software. Um, but here you have all these hardware, all these cool devices, and you can play with them. Uh, do all this kind of stupid stuff, uh, like pretending you are good at that. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed that. That that was good times. <laughs> Missing that as well. well. We need to get Herb along to an ADC uh, sometime so we can yeah we can play piano. By the way, was he was he playing this year? Um, he actually played with the band. Oh, cool. Um, the the. Uh, so yeah, he he sat in he sat in them with them. Was that recorded? Um, well, it was recorded, but I'm not sure it's going to be released. Uh, and that was just part uh. of the the run up to the. Um, we we had the band play before and after the plenary, uh, each plenary every day, and so um, they they start like half an hour before, and so we don't. You probably have to cut it as a separate video, you know, and place to the channel <laughs> as a separate video. Well, you know, um, uh, there was, uh, I know that at one point um, the band was simply out in the corridor 
uh, just busking. And I know Dave Abraham sat in, he had his guitar and, and sat in and was playing with him too. You know, there's an awful lot of people in the, in the C++ programming community that are somewhat musician, musical. And I have wondered if, you know, we have a professional band there. Uh, can we have some kind of event where, where, I don't know, a, a lightning talk that's musical based or something like that. I don't know. Um, trying to figure out how to make that work. Um, not being musical myself, I don't know what would work and what wouldn't. So I need, I need somebody else to, <laughs> to think about what would be a cool event to do. I talked to Dave about it and maybe he'll come up with an interesting idea. Having, getting to see Dave again was amazing. Yeah, that's the thing. Actually, I usually talk to people about the CPPCon when they like ask me about what the conference is about. I usually say like, that's the conference when they talk about C++ and play piano. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, playing in the key of C++. That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have run really long. I'm sure we could talk for another hour or so just about this, but we, we really need to wrap up. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we'll see how we, we run it. But um, may, maybe we will do this again one time. But I said it'd be a one-off. But, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll see see how it's received, I think. But let's, um, let's say goodbye for now. So um, see you next time. Right. Yeah. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. And safe coding, of course. <laughs> safe coding.